Hello, welcome to Research Time, a new podcast designed to highlight translational research from Queen's University. The main goal of these podcasts will be to focus on the researcher and their journey in the lab. My name's Dr. Charlie Highmarch, and I'm a genomics researcher at Queen's University, Kingston, Ontario. Today, I want to introduce you to Dr. Vijaratna and Dr. Wright, who have recently published their research entitled Malignant Superior Vena Cava Syndrome, a scoping review in a high-impact research journal called Journal of Thoracic Oncology. Dr. Vijaratna and Dr. Wright are world-class clinician research scientists working at Queen's University. And today, we're going to find out more about their research and try and understand how this will benefit Canadians. Thank you, Charlize, uh, for this opportunity. Really appreciate uh, you making the time to um, have this discussion. Also, I would like to thank the Department of Medicine and the Translational Institute at Queen's for providing this opportunity and highlighting our paper. Before we proceed, um, I would want to acknowledge uh, the team. As you know, this is a multidisciplinary team, although Christine and I, as first and last author, we um, talk about this paper today. Uh, there's a whole um, uh, group of uh, experts and subspecialists who've contributed to this paper. We have uh, a medical oncologist, Dr. Bishal Gavali, uh, a respirologist, Dr. Janivia uh, Digby, a radiation oncologist, uh, Dr. Fabio Moraz, and a uh, uh, interventional radiologist, Dr. Alex uh, Menard, um, and also um, a budding respirologist, uh, Dr. Reem Jard. Uh, our first thought, as I was saying, is uh, Dr. Christine Wright, who's also a budding oncologist and uh, has put in uh, lots of efforts uh, in putting uh, everything together. And I think that's really interesting, just the, the, the diversity of the team that you've, you've suggested. Um, you have oncologists and you have respirologists. It's a multidisciplinary team I, I, you've assembled here. Absolutely. Yeah. So maybe before we dive into the actual paper and the findings, I think because it's kind of a niche area in medicine about this superior vena cava syndrome, I feel it's probably good to take a step back and talk about what this context is. And then I'll hand it over to Christine, who's the first author of this paper, uh, who will probably uh, go into a little bit more detail of what uh, our findings are. So superior vena cava syndrome in a very simplified way is causing obstruction by some means to the blood supply that goes into the heart. And it can be due to a variety of reasons, some type of mass, tumor um, that can cause this. And we know uh, majority of the time, about 70% of the time, it's actually related to cancer. And that's why lung cancer is an important cause of superior vena cava obstruction. Um, and that's why our paper focuses on cancer in particular. And because it's in the thorax, um, uh, majority of the cases are related to lung cancer. So, so it's an obstructive heart condition that's related, that's secondary to the cancer. Right. So it's a, it's an obstructive condition that obstructs the blood supply coming into the heart. Uh, and, and the classic example is a lung cancer in that local area that would cause that obstruction. So... With this obstruction, there's a constellation of features that can happen from different symptoms to um, uh, feeling unwell. They can actually present with uh, poor, poor blood supply that can be uh, fatal as well. So the details, I don't know whether it's the correct forum to get into details of, uh, but the treatment modalities with a cancer uh, related to superior vena cava obstruction uh, can range from um, uh, typical treatments for cancer, that would be uh, your surgery, 
chemotherapy, radiation, and then more, um, more specifically given the nature of the uh, obstruction, uh, considering vascular stenting. So that's kind of the broad range, and there are certain other supportive treatments like steroids and uh, diuretics, as we call, to pee out some of the excess fluid, etc. So our task was to look at how important are these strategies? Do we need to relook at these uh, interventions? And one of the reasons why we did that was the evidence put together as a review was actually over a decade ago. And we know over the past decade, things have changed, new evidence has come in, and we wanted to revisit this topic, uh, which was very timely, and figure out is there anything new that we can contribute to literature in terms of treating superior vena cava obstruction? Okay, so just to kind of clarify and recap just a little bit, uh, you, you know, one finds oneself with uh, cancer, possibly a lung cancer, and this has the secondary effect of impacting the heart and the way that the heart functions. So that the patients who have this have really a double hit. They have cancer and then they go on to have these malignancies in the heart, which actually cause uh, a, a more problems for them on, on top of the original cancer. Right. I wouldn't necessarily call a malignancy of the heart, but given the location, you're absolutely right. It does cause obstruction and causes the um, compromise of the blood supply to the heart that can have a cascading effect, yes. So you, you have these two giant tubes in your body that connect the blood from the rest of your body back into your heart. And when you have a blockage of one of those tubes, what we call the, the higher up tube or the superior vena cava is the anatomic term for it, that stops the blood from being able to drain back into the heart. And so then people are caught with a whole bunch of fluid that's just stuck in the upper part of their body that limits their ability to breathe. It causes pressure sort of in their, uh, in the rest of the blood vessels that are in their uh, upper part of their body. And so it can cause comas and... Um, it can also just cause them to not have enough blood in the rest of their bodies. And so it's classically regarded as a, a medical emergency, but it can really present on a sort of a, a wide range of severity when people come in. Sometimes they're just feeling a little bit more short of breath or a little bit more sleepy or lightheaded. Or sometimes they come in and, and they look really unwell in, in front of you. And so it's it's really a, a really interesting disease, but a, a wide spectrum of how people come into the hospital looking for help. And I, and I guess the reason why it's kind of causing this kind of maybe sleepiness and fatigue and, and these kind of things is because of uh, impacting the perfusion pressure on the brain. Exactly. And it can be caused by a, a number of different ways. So you can have the actual tumor itself sort of causing that blockage and cutting off the supply directly. Or you could also have uh, blood clots or tumor, what we call tumor thrombus, which is little parts of the tumor that breaks off, sort of building up and causing that blockage as well. And there's also non-malignant causes as well, which we didn't really look at our in our paper, but is also kind of interesting. I, I think that the the first time that superior vena cava syndrome was ever described, it was actually caused by syphilis. Interestingly enough, like back in the day before there was ever antibiotics or anything like that. Okay, that's really interesting. So, so, the, so, so this this paper's been put together because the existing therapies were either inconsistent or they just didn't work. Yeah. So, I mean, Christine can probably go into details of that, but essentially, yes, the premise behind doing this work was that the existing review or the constellation of information that was available in the treatment of superior vena cava obstruction was obsolete. It was over 10 years ago, and of since there's new therapies that have come in and would change the um, history of how we treat um, uh, these cancers, and we want to relook at 
um, uh, a superior cover obstruction and its treatment in the context of new therapies and put this information together in the form of a review. So Kristin will probably take over and uh, give you a synopsis of what we actually found. Yeah, so in, in medicine, we're always growing and evolving. We're always doing studies looking for better ways to do things and always sort of checking back in with what we're doing now and doing studies to see if, if there's new treatment available or if there's different protocols that might be available. Uh, and this is actually a, a great example of that. So classically for the treatment of severe vena cava uh, syndrome, as Dr. Wajratna was mentioning, um, goes back to treating the underlying cancer itself in, in many cases. And so some cancers are, are more susceptible to different uh, treatments than others. For example, uh, just within lung cancer itself, uh, there's one subtype of lung cancer that's really susceptible to treatment with chemotherapy, and there's another kind that isn't really as susceptible. Um, and so really when you're deciding on how to treat the superior vena cava syndrome, we're often trying to figure out what the actual cancer is by getting a, a diagnosis of it with getting a, a biopsy or a tissue sample um, so that we can pick the best treatment option available. Uh, there's other things that we do as well. Um, and part of the big focus of the study was actually looking at the evidence behind all, all these different strategies. Um, things like chemotherapy, radiation, all of the evidence behind that, because you know these treatment mode, these treatment options have been available for so long, those studies were all done like decades ago, like 10, 20 years ago, because oftentimes these these drugs aren't new. Um, and so when we did our study, exactly what we did was captured what has come out in the last 10 years regarding treatment of malignant superior vena cava syndrome specifically and what is new in that field. And so we looked at those classic options that Dr. Wajratne mentioned before, like diuretics or the, the water pills, steroids, uh, things like elevating the head of the bed to try to alleviate some of the pressure. We didn't find any any new studies in the last 10 years for that. We also looked at surgical techniques, if there's any uh, new therapies from that perspective that have come uh, about in the last 10 years, and there was nothing from that perspective. Same with chemotherapy and radiation. Um, but what we really found, and the, the really interesting part of our, our study, was that there's this whole new crop of literature about endovascular stenting, which is when you take a uh, sort of a stent and you use it to sort of open up that blocked blood vessel that we were talking about before to allow that blood to, to go back through. Um, and this is sort of a, something that is an option for treatment of malignant superior vena cava syndrome, but sort of what, what we were finding when we were going through this is that it, it might be somewhat underutilized uh, and, and that we found that when we were doing the study that the, the effectiveness of this, but also the safety of this is, is really, really good. Um, and so uh, sort of where we, where we ended up with our team is seeing that this is a, a really good strategy that can maybe come to the forefront of treating this disease a little bit more in the, in the appropriate patient in the appropriate setting. So I, I think what's kind of interesting that's falling out of that is in the title of the paper, there's kind of very much the, the word scoping review. And of course, you know, so people outside of the field might come in and sort of say, what's a scoping review? And, and it was going to be a question I asked. Actually, you've made a really nice demonstration of a scoping review being 
all the information from the entire global community of scientists working on these problems is out there. And your job was to knit it together and trying to find if there's any consistencies that were enough to be able to recommend a new standard of care for patients that then you can put out there and have doctors around the world then adopting this as being a more appropriate treatment for, 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 for this condition. Yeah, 100%. Our, our whole goal with this was to try to do the legwork in terms of seeing what new information is out there in the last 10 years and put it in a paper that's digestible for other physicians when they're in this specific clinical scenario wondering what to do next. And hopefully, you know, this will help somebody when they're when they have a patient in front of them with thinking of what the different options are available. Uh, one of the interesting things about superior vena cava syndrome uh, in the context of malignancy is that we don't really have a lot of guidelines that tell physicians how to proceed. Normally in, in treatment of different diseases like high blood pressure or high cholesterol, things like that, we have really strong guidelines that tell us this is the medication that you use in this instance, this is your second step, et cetera. Um, in the case of superior uh, malignant superior vena cava syndrome, we don't really have that except for maybe one uh, guideline for treatment of one specific kind of lung cancer. And so I think studies like this are, are really useful and really beneficial to just summarize the evidence that, that's out there because in the case where there aren't any guidelines, clinicians are sort of left in the position of having to do this for themselves often. And, and, and how would a paper like this influence the kind of setting of future guidelines? Do you, do you think that it's likely to have that kind of impact? Yeah, so I think um, what we are facilitating is to put this evidence together and summarizing this information, how that translates into guidelines, uh, essentially based on the buy-in, right? So for superior vena cava syndrome per se, it's a very niche area. And it's also there's a big overlap between uh, your regular treatment of lung cancer. So I think it's definitely definitely a niche area and what we actually summarize by itself I think is very valuable into literature into in order to inform people of what the new changes and how the evidence has evolved over the past 10 years whether or not there'll be a strict or uh, stringent guideline for this niche area uh, I'm unsure but it definitely the information will inform clinicians uh, which I'm hoping will uh, translate into practice changes as well. I, I, I found it interesting when I was reading the paper as uh, I'm not a clinician scientist at all, uh, but I found it kind of interesting that uh, you used a theoretical case to be able to sell that. And I, and I guess what I wanted to know is, is this normal for these kind of scoping reviews? Because I found it a very useful mechanism to, again, like the, 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 the doctors who might be turning looking for an appropriate treatment strategy may use that and see their own patient in your theoretical case. Is that a common tool or is that something that you used for this paper as yeah so so it's interesting this was actually inspired by one of my own patients so i think there's a very compelling and personal uh, touch to this uh, whole uh, task where i did have a patient who unfortunately uh, uh, didn't do too well with her lung cancer and her lung cancer was actually in this particular area causing all the constellation of symptoms that we were talking about. And at that time, there was, um, I think we do a fantastic job in terms of uh, considering all treatment options. And uh, usually, uh, in uh, at Queen's and at most centers, there's a multidisciplinary team that gets together uh, in a tumor board and discusses all treatment options, etc. Um, 
irrespective, un- unfortunately, the outcome for this patient was not ideal. And that actually led me to think, are we, is there any other potential? Is there provision to think differently? Is there provision to advocate for uh, certain procedures like stenting uh, in a more proactive way? So those were the questions that I had as a clinician that transpired in a natural way from my own patient to actually formulating a research question. At that time, I didn't know the answers. And uh, I myself, I'm an internist, so I'm not going to make recommendations about saying that this patient needs a stenting, but that actually triggered an interest in me to study this. And that's why... But by doing this exercise, knowing that stenting can be offered in a more proactive way um, was actually very enabling for me to be able to advocate for my patients going forward. Uh, just one other thing about stenting that I would like to talk about is that conventionally we, t- uh, we consider stenting when uh, there's refractory symptoms and other modalities, modalities of treatment haven't actually worked. In our review, we actually find that there is potential for using stenting, of course, in the right patient, more proactively earlier on in their course of treatment, almost preemptively. Based on the location, we don't need to wait until they develop refractory symptoms, etc. So I think that's a key message because there's very strong literature to show that it's effective and safe. The caveat to this, however, is that there's also new modalities of treatment like immune therapy, targeted therapy, which is a whole new domain that has opened up over the past one and a half decades or so that, in fact, was not captured um, in the previous uh, um, uh, summaries of treating uh, superior vena cava syndrome. So I think it's a kind of unique where we are able to highlight some of these factors uh, in our paper. So, I mean, I, I think it's fair to say, or, or rather, is it fair to say that kind of part of the job of stenting that you're doing isn't necessarily to kind of, um, uh, you know, prolong life. It's it's more to kind of increase quality of life because, of course, that this is often secondary to a devastating cancer as well. So it's like increase this the stenting increases the quality of life for these patients. Absolutely, one hundred. I think you make a really good point. And in oncology, uh, we focus on treating patients, but sometimes we are unsure what we really want to achieve. And uh, we think about, okay, in cancer patients, is the primary goal for them to live longer? Answer is probably not. Quality of life and controlling their symptoms has equal, if not more, weightage. And I think uh, stenting would, would likely be a prime example of offering that. Absolutely. The important part of all of this, too, is that the decision to proceed with stenting is is a multidisciplinary one. And so you have to make sure that you're in a center where there's actually the technical expertise available, the machines available. Um, and so that's why we, we really focused on getting a multidisciplinary team on this paper with us, because these conversations don't just happen from an internist like Dr. Wajratney or I saying, you know, I think this patient should be stunted and just proceeding with that. But it's, it's really a, an in-depth discussion with the whole team about uh, what is right for that patient based on uh, their underlying disease, based on their underlying health and, and all these other factors like setting, et cetera. 
Um, and so I think our, our big take home message is that it's something that should be should be talked about and should be considered probably more than what it is right now. Um, but in the uh, the appropriate patient in the appropriate setting, it's it, it can, it's a really useful potential tool. So are there, it's a, I'm interested to kind of like question are there kind of confounding factors because I know a lot of cancer therapies actually can cause heart failure and cause cardiovascular problems as well. Does that kind of layer on top of this as being a problem or is that independent? So uh, each patient is different, and this is where personalized care comes into place. And often these patients have so many other comorbidities like their diabetes hypertension, heart failure. So finding the right treatment can be challenging. But I can tell you, stenting by itself is a kind of a mechanical means. And often it does not preclude from considering stenting. Of course, their overall functional status and the utility needs to be considered, but as opposed to a very strong chemotherapy that has side effects that will also affect their heart function versus a, a mechanical, more of a mechanical procedure that would actually open up the vessels and give them symptom relief. Uh, in fact, most patients will likely be eligible, but definitely it's an it's a individual case-by-case decision. So you've talked an awful lot about the interdisciplinary nature of your team. And I, 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 not being a clinician, in, in real time on the wards, do you find the crossover between kind of uh, oncologists and interventionists and um, uh, cardiovasculars and respirologists? Because often in the scientific literature, you often find that these things, these fields become very siloed. Actually, in practice, do, do these clinicians from kind of discrete disciplines, do they interact quite well? Or Yeah, absolutely. I, I think that's one of the the best parts of taking care of a patient is in front of you is that you always have a, a common goal. And as Dr. Woodratna was saying, that's often where the best research studies come from as well, uh, is, is with that common goal of what do we do with this patient in front of me and how do we best serve them? And so I, I find that absolutely when you go to another service and you ask them for their expertise, um, people are, are always happy to, to help and to get involved and, and to have these conversations. And Again, really with that common goal of how do we best help this person in front of us. So I have a a little bit of a plug in here because at Queen's and how our hospital functions is actually quite unique and fantastic to actually harvest and harbor this uh, multidisciplinary approach. Uh, Patients who are admitted are often admitted to a general internal medicine service that also entails that all the subspecialists will be consulted. So it's a really nice organizational structure, I find, especially in inpatient medicine, to be able to have that collaboration uh, in patients. So it works quite well in the outpatient setting as well with the multidisciplinary tumor boards, etc. But that communication piece and the holistic approach, putting things together, Queens and Kingston General, I think this is a remarkable job because most places, uh, the admission structure is quite subspecialist specific. But here, I think the integration piece works really well because uh, most patients are admitted under a general service uh, with uh, subspecialists getting involved in their care. I, as, as, as both a, a, a patient in terms of the fact that I'm obviously resident to Kingston, but, but also as a scientist at Queen's, it's a, it's, it's, uh, some of that resonates with me. But also it's, it's, it's lovely to work in a university hospital for that reason, because you have that kind of really nice interface between uh, the, the clinical care and, and trying to identify pathophysiology and trying to identify why these things. And, and, and ultimately, the, the mission of Translational Institutes of Medicine is, of course, trying to take findings and convert them into meaningful ways of improving patient care and patient health. So that's completely on brand. 
So what's next for this research? Because obviously you've published a paper and that's sometimes the end point of a project. But uh, from this conversation, I'm getting the feeling that, that, that both of you are pretty ambitious about pursuing this. What does it look like the next five years of this to try and bring it to, to either being a standard of care or trying to identify maybe the mechanisms by which this works? What happens next? Yeah, so as I see the whole endeavor was to put this information together and make it in a digestible format for clinicians to be able to, uh, in a snapshot, acknowledge where the current literature is. So, and I think that would enable many clinicians to uh, reconsider uh, the different treatment modalities and what this is in the context of uh, modern day therapy. Um, taking the next steps in terms of uh, this particular research question, um, I think there's lots of knowledge gaps that we identified in our review, which I'm sure uh, Kristin uh, will get to. Go ahead, Kristin. Oh, yeah, sure. Yeah. So I think you always uncover more questions yeah. when you, whenever you're doing any project. I think that's true across the board. Yeah, it's, it's, the, lim <laughs> it's the limitations that drive the next experiment, right? Exactly, exactly. So some of the things that, that we realized, and I think Dr. Wajaratne sort of touched on it a little bit earlier, is all these studies for uh, chemotherapy and radiation therapy were done decades ago. Um, but cancer is one of those fields that's constantly evolving. We have new treatments coming out all the time. And one of the, the big directions is actually in the form of immunotherapy and biologic therapy, which I'm sure lots of people have heard lots of buzz about. We actually don't have any data with uh, regards to malignancy pyruvina cava specifically and how these treatments uh, would actually affect that. All the data that we have so far is on these older chemotherapy uh, and radiation therapy techniques. And so I think one uh, potential area of research is actually doing the studies, the primary studies, to see how how effective these new therapies are with treating superior vena cava syndrome and comparing them against the old ones. Uh, the other potential area is we actually don't know too much about follow-up care for once we put these stents in. And so oftentimes when people get stents, they'll need some form of blood thinner, uh, whether it's uh, like an aspirin or whether it's more of a, a other kind of blood thinner and how long they should be on those. And so those are all different topics that... They're all questions that can effectively optimize this care for the benefit of the patient. 100%. Okay. Thank you both very much for coming in today and talking about your research. It's absolutely fascinating and uh, I really enjoyed our conversation. Thank you very much to the audience for listening as well. If you'd like to know more about this or any other translational research from Queen's University, you can follow us on Twitter at QueensUTime or check out the description for more details. If you'd like to hear this again or share it with other people, you can find this podcast on Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you find your podcast normally. On behalf of the Translational Institute of Medicine at Queen's University, thank you very much for listening and thank you for your time. <laughs>